All right, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Esther. We have a good, long passage today, so get comfortable. Get a drink, get a beverage, a pillow, whatever you need. We're going to begin in Esther chapter 2, verse 5, and we're going to read through chapter 3. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's unit, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's units who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. 
Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. When Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Good morning. Could you picture that story in your head as Pastor Steve was reading all of that? That's exciting stuff going on. I don't know if you pictured all the pictures going on in there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask Holy Spirit for you to minister to your church. We ask, Lord, that you would speak through these two chapters in Esther. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Esther, we see God at work even though his name is never mentioned in this book, which is pretty interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating. And even if he is not acknowledged to be in control, we see that he is. That God preserves his people so that they may be witnesses to who he is, to the world, through Jesus. Now for the past two Sundays, we've looked at these verses from Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul shares with us about Jesus. Let's look at that section again, starting in verse 7. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, as we go through these two chapters, we need to keep this in mind as the greater story within this story of Esther. So let's begin, and we'll look at 
our first character here, Mordecai, verses 5 and 6. Don't worry, I'm not going to reread everything again. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So this is in reference to the Babylonian captivity, which started in 597 B.C., and we find that Mordecai's family was one of many thousands of Jews who were exiled to Babylon. Now from Nebuchadnezzar to the reign of Ahasuerus is over a hundred years. It's over a century. So when we're talking about a person like Mordecai, we're talking about someone who's been there for generations. His family's been there for generations. This is a person who knows the Babylonian culture really well. He grew up in it. He was born in this. One who is loyal to his Jewish roots and one who is loyal to Babylon and its king, as we'll see at the end of chapter 2. Now, this brings a question to us. How are we as Christians to be loyal to our faith in Jesus as well as loyal to our society, ministering to our community, serving it? How do we live lives honoring Jesus and blessing our community, our neighborhoods? As we look at the time of Mordecai, this was not an ideal time for him to live as a Jew in Babylon, just as it may not be an ideal time for you and I to live as Christians in the Bay Area. I don't know if any of you feel the tension. But here, Mordecai was able to live for God, bless his people, serve his community. So we get this glimpse into the character of Mordecai. And in verse 7, it gives us a further glimpse into the type of person Mordecai was. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, that's sexist. She's bringing up beauty and her figure and all this kind of stuff. Let's just relax and look at what the names mean. Hadassah is Esther's Jewish names. It means myrtle. And if you guys just Google an image of myrtle, it's pretty. Right? It's nice, okay? And Esther is the Persian name, which means star. So this gives you into some insight as to why this is described of Esther. She's pretty and it's talking about her appearance and they speak to her beauty and we're told that she has this beautiful figure and a lovely appearance lovely to look at and her names match that appearance and so we're also informed in verse 7 that she's an orphan and when that happened when she became an orphan her cousin Mordecai took her as his own daughter this is a really really good guy this is a good guy to take care of his cousin. Verse 8, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. So here the king's scouts are going all over Susa, looking around for young women to bring for this gathering, and Esther was selected to be part of this gathering. One of those scouts said, Hey, check her out. Bring her. we got to bring her. And so Susa is this large city. This is the summer palace of the king. This is where the capital would move during the summertime. So you can imagine how many women were gathered because this is a large city with a large population. And it's in this society that Mordecai and Esther lived, practicing their faith in God while in the Persian culture, while serving a king like Ahasuerus. And they were in this religious minority who had the faith in God of Moses, Isaac, and Jacob, the same faith as them. And it is through them that the people of God will be delivered 
and where God's testimony will be proven faithful. Now you notice that their role was not to lead some revolution, was not to overthrow the Persian Empire. They simply lived out their faith in this cultural environment that was not ideal to their worldviews, their beliefs, and their values. Just like some of you right here in the Bay Area. We're here. So how are we going to live as followers of Jesus in a culture that, that does not see some things the same way that we do? So we can look at Esther and Mordecai. They're not the ideal people to look at because some things are questionable in there. But how are they living in this culture? How are they living in this community? In verse 9, And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portions of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So Esther won Hegai's favor. Now the Greek historian Herodotus recorded that Hegai was an officer of King Ahasuerus. So Hegai had some influence and he held an office with the king and it seems that Hegai gave Esther some special treatment to help her along the way and advancing her to the best places within the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now we see the influence of Mordecai on Esther's life here as she trusted to do as Mordecai instructed her to do. And it wasn't to conceal who she was permanently, but it was strategic in that there was a better time to disclose this information. Now, in verses 11 through 18, it tells us of what happened, that Mordecai was following her closely and was wanting to know more about her and how this process of going to King Ahasuerus and all this stuff. And so that goes through verse 18, and I won't reread all of that for you. Now, for those of us who know the story of Esther, we know that she saved her people because of the position she had as queen. But looking back at this, prior to her becoming queen, do you think that she knew what she was going to do when she was gathered with the other young women? Do you think she knows what was happening? Now in Esther 4 verse 14, Mordecai has a conversation with her and he says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. She has no clue. She doesn't know why she's there. Here's something to think about. We don't always see what God is doing in the present. We don't know. Oftentimes, we don't see it until we've taken steps of faith. And after those steps of faith, we can then look back and see the handiwork of God. Sometimes, we don't even agree with how things are taking place. They just seem strange to us. They're questionable to us. Like, how is this possibly working out? We know God is ultimately in control. But the choices that we make along the way, they're not always good decisions. They're not always good choices. Things even happen that are beyond our control. See, Esther didn't choose to be part of a harem. Nor did Mordecai encourage Esther to be part of a harem. What practicing Jew would choose to be a part of this? Would choose for their daughter to be a part of this? To be a candidate to marry a pagan who took their people into captivity? A king who does not worship the same God as the Jews? No one would wish this 
for their daughter. No one would do this to their loved one. No one would suggest that you should get together with someone, but you need to hide your faith. You need to hide who you are. No one would think these things. And so it goes for the things in our lives today. Things don't always work out as we have hoped. They don't. Maybe you married a person who changed on you. They're not the person you thought you married, and they're different. Maybe there are decisions that you've made that were beyond your control, that they're not a decision that you wanted to make, but you know what? You had to do it because this is the circumstance that you're in. This is the situation that you're in. Just know that God is ultimately in control, even in your less than ideal circumstances, that he's not done yet. He's not finished yet. That he's really, really good. Actually, he's the best at making beautiful things out of our messes. He's really good at that. This is Jesus. He said this about himself in Luke chapter 4 when they handed him the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up and he turns to Isaiah 61. Now I'm quoting from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. We've all made bad choices. We've all made poor choices. We've all been in bad situations that were beyond our control. We've all had hopes and dreams and goals that have never been achieved. But he's still ultimately in control. He still has a purpose for your life. He is not done with you yet. Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Now back in verse 10, Mordecai told Esther not to let people know that she was a Jew, not something that she's to be ashamed of or to keep secret forever, but for the time being, let's just keep it on the DL. Let's just, just keep it down low. And during that time, he kept a close eye on Esther as he possibly could. He's kind of like following around and he's picking up on how things work in the king's court and how this whole process is working. And we find him a couple times at the king's gate, right? Verses 19 and 21. Now in verse 21, it reads this. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So in his love and in his care for Esther, he's hanging around so much, he's able to hear about this assassination attempt from the king's eunuchs. And so he tells Queen Esther about this, of of this plot, picking up in verse 22. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, in looking at all of this, I don't think we can possibly come to the conclusion that Esther and Mordecai are the most heroic of people. 
If you just kind of look at this, don't give them the benefit of the doubt that, oh, they're in the Bible, so of course they're heroic, of course they're great people. If we're just looking at this kind of objectively, isn't their morality questionable? Hiding things, being kind of sneaky, you know, they're not bold, they're not courageous hero types, they're kind of timid, they're secretive. They're just kind of letting things happen to them rather than kind of like going forward and making things happen. They're just kind of like rolling with this tide. Oh, the king picked you to be part of the harem. Okay, I'll go. Uh, okay, then you're hanging out with Haggai. Okay, then go ahead. And it seems like things are just kind of happening to them, but they're not kind of putting themselves forward in here. So when we do these character studies of the Bible, it's really important to recognize that it is God who is the hero not the people he is working through. Now sure, we have heroes we look up to in the Bible, but who's really behind them? So when we look at biblical heroes, we must remember that it is ultimately God who's the hero, that he uses broken people for his glory. And Esther and Mordecai were used by God, but they're not the heroes of the greater story. God is. And so we see how redemptive, how restorative God is, that even... Though Esther and Mordecai, they have these questionable tactics, this questionable morality, these questionable actions, he still comes through for his people. Even when people don't recognize him to work because his name's not even mentioned in all of the book of Esther, yet he's clearly at work. Now, as we get into chapter 3, you notice that it isn't Mordecai who was recognized for uncovering this assassination plot against the king. Sure, his good deed is recorded in the book of Chronicles, which will get him rewarded later, but he wasn't promoted. There wasn't a party or celebration or rewarded right after this good deeds. How many of you feel stepped over? Not recognized for your contribution, that you're just invisible. And it's bad enough that you're not noticed, but... To see the powerful get more powerful. To see the rich get richer. It just doesn't seem right, does it? We're in the Bay Area. There's a ton of money out here. There's so many people. You see the disparity really clearly of people who have nothing and people who have so much. And it just doesn't seem right. Especially when all that so-called good stuff is happening to not-so-good people. So looking at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay a homage. So everyone but the king was to submit to Haman, which I think Mordecai was willing to do. But he wasn't willing to bow down and pay homage to him. Why is this? Because this isn't an out-of-the-ordinary thing. Jews did this to kings and authority figures, and this is not a big thing to pay homage. It's not like a false god or something. It's just a tribute of respect. But why is this? And so thinking about this, just in like human terms, maybe he's upset. He saves the king, and nothing is to be made out of it except a couple sentences in a history book when he's the one that kind of prevented this assassination attempt. And so what does he get? Nothing. And here Haman is getting all of that. It's just one theory. 
commentaries are written as to all these different reasons. Maybe it's deeper than this. We know that Mordecai was a Benjaminite and Haman was an Amalekite, an Agagite. That there's this long history of hostility between these two populations, which we'll go into that later. And to put the cherry on top, Haman is not a good guy. He's a terrible guy. But we know God to work in really mysterious ways, don't we? And so we'll get into how significant being recorded in the Chronicles was in chapter 6. We talked about that briefly last week. But it sure doesn't feel good to see others, especially if they're not good people, move ahead of you while you don't get very much yourself when you're doing really good. Yet God's ways are not our ways, and it's hard to see what God is doing in the present. We actually can't see what he's doing until it's done a lot of times. Now, picking up in verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him, the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Like I said before, there are many thoughts as to the reasons why Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to Haman. There's a ton of commentaries, there's a ton of scholars who have written about this, but according to verse 4, it was because his faith as a Jew. Now, we know Haman to descend from the Amalekites. We know Mordecai to descend from the Benjaminites. Now, this is very important to keep in mind as we continue with our story. And we're going to get to that in verse 10. So, first, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So, this is... Five years into the reign of Queen Esther. She's been queen for five years now. And so these guys are superstitious guys. They're casting lots to see which lucky day they're going to pull so that they can go forward with this plan of genocide. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they all be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Not a completely true argument from Haman. He manipulates some of the facts and the situation to work in his favor. In addition to these half-truths and manipulation, he offers some money to sweeten the deal. Now, yes, Haman had a lot of money, but do you really think that he was going to pay out of his own pocket to the king's treasury? He's not thinking that, like, oh, I'll give this. He is thinking, you know, the Jews that I kill, I'm going to take a portion of that, but I'm going to pay out of their pocket. I'm going to take it, I'm going to give that, and I'm going to keep the rest. And he knows that the king has already gone through a three-year war with Greece. And he lost. That's expensive. If you lose a war, it's expensive. If you win a war, you get a lot, right? You take everything. But if you lose, it's really expensive. 
So, hey, king, what do you think? If I put this back into your treasury, huh? Of course this sounds good. This sounds great. Now verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. So Ahasuerus gives power. He gives authority to Haman. And it's really dangerous to give this to someone who will abuse it. Now you notice that this is the second time that it's mentioned that Haman is an Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. And we need to pay special attention when there is repetition in the Bible because repetition is used to emphasize something. Now here in verse 10, there's this extra phrase in there and it reads this, the enemy of the Jews. Now why is that there? What's the history behind this? We have to go back to the Exodus. You go back to Exodus when God's people were rescued from slavery from Egypt and they're walking across the desert. And along this journey, these people are already malnourished people. These were slaves. These were people who were weak already from how they were treated. And as they were journeying through this, more people were getting sick. More people were getting weak. More people were dying. Many people were vulnerable. If you think of the elderly who have to make this trek, if you think of infants and toddlers and babies, and it's this time that Amalek says, let's kill him. And just offing the people towards the back, working from the back towards the front, killing off these weak people. And Joshua is sent to fight against the Amalekites. That's the background of this story. Now picking up the story in Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul is the king of Israel. God tells him, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. We talked about free will a little bit last week. Here's Saul's free will. We have God's providence with this instruction, which is going to happen with or without Saul. But he gives Saul the choice here. Now you skip down to verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So God told Saul to destroy Amalek. This is his providence. In his free will, he disobeys God and it has really, really serious consequences. You know, when we go with what we believe, what we value, what others believe to be good, to be wise, to be reasonable, to be logical, yet it is contrary to God's instructions, we're being really foolish. We're being really foolish. And Saul finally recognized this in verse 24, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. How often do we let fear lead us? How often do we let others' voices 
lead us? How often do we follow others' wisdom, others' thoughts, others' values, others' beliefs, and not listen to God? Now back to Haman. Who was he? We're told he's an Agagite. The guy that Saul spared. That's who he is. Now, who was Mordecai? Esther chapter 2 verse 5 told us that he is the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Who was Kish? It was this awesome band in the 70s with black and white face paint. And it was just a... Kish was Saul's father. Do you see all this come into play? Do you see how the disobedience came around to haunt the Jewish people? Because Haman is not even supposed to be there. He's supposed to be wiped out. And yet there he is. But because of Mordecai's forefathers' disobedience, the Jews are faced with genocide from Haman and Agagite. Disobedience to God has really serious consequences. And we might not notice them right away. We might even think we know better than God, that we will do something against God's word because it seems right to us. It seems right to society, even though God's word instructs against it. But there are serious, serious ramifications for our disobedience. And it doesn't only affect our generations. It is for generations to come. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap. The church Christians have pulled a saw on many occasion on what God has commanded us. We've done this for generations. We already have done this in regards to sexuality issues. And I'm going to be touching a really sensitive spot here in the Bay Area. And I'm going for it. But not to the extent that you think I am. In regards to LGBTQ issues, I'm not going there because I want us to really take a look at the mirror and take a step back. To take a step back and look at the hypocrisy within the church and its lack of addressing fornication, adultery, and other sexual immorality within heterosexual relationships. Because I think why we kind of go straight to LGBTQ things is that we don't want to look at this stuff and just make it look like we're okay. And let's just blame them. Let's just go over there. Let's just start looking at their stuff. When it's all sin. I know there are people in our church that struggle with sexual immorality. There are people who are living with each other who are not married. There are people who are having sex before marriage. There are people who are addicted to pornography. Some of you are committing adultery. How many Christians have a log in their own eye while they're addressing the speck in another's eye? How many prominent Christians have spoken against the LGBTQ lifestyle while all the while they've been cheating on their wife? Addicted to porn. And you see them in the news. It is all sin. All of it. Now verse 11. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's 
satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the people, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. This is pure evil. This is sadistic stuff that is happening, because listen to this. The 13th day of the first month referred to in verse 12 is what day? This is the day before the Passover feast. You see how sadistic this man is? You see how spiteful, how evil he is? Because in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 5, it's written this. In the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. He is coming up with a plan to... Wipe them out the day before Passover. Now, why do Jews celebrate Passover? Why do they celebrate this? To commemorate, to remember that when they were in bondage to Egypt, that God set them free. So what is this about? I am going to make your God look like a fool. I am going to make it seem like your God is nothing. Because we got control, we're going to wipe you off from the face of the earth. Right before the celebration, Haman arranges to have this edict declared to rub it in the face of all Jews, to mock them, to mock their faith, to mock their God. So in the midst of all this, how are the Jews going to respond? Was it going to be that of fear that, you know what, we're all going to die? We're all going to be murdered? Or is it going to be one of faith and saying, God came through for us in the Passover. He's going to do it again. I think for me, I'd be scared. I'd be scared out of my mind. And then in verse 15, it says, The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So all is fine with the king and Haman, while the city of Susa is just confused. Now, why is the city confused? The entire city is confused. Why is it not just the Jews? Why isn't it just the Jews who are in a panic, who are full of anxiety? Why is it that the city is? Because the Jews had lived there for generations. They've been here for generations. They're a part of this fabric of the Babylonian society. And since a decree to wipe out the Jews can be made so easily, so hastily, it can happen within any other group within the Persian Empire. Right? It could be anybody. We can wipe out anybody. So the people are freaked out because they're like, it could be them today, it could be us tomorrow. There's nothing that's protecting us. Now throughout all of this, how's God? Cities in confusion. What's God like? Oh, what am I going to do? Oh, that's not God. God's not panicked at all. He's in control. The chess pieces are moved. The queen is a Jew. The guy who saved the king's life is a Jew. The things are in place. God's not panicked. He's fine. Things are set up. 
we may be confused as to the things happening in the world. We may be panicked. We may have anxiety. There's so much inequity. There's so much injustice in our society. And sometimes we're just like, what is going on? But God is not fearful. God is not full of anxiety. God is not panicked. He's in control. He's moved the pieces already. And we just can't see the whole picture. Let's end with this verse. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask God that we would take a look at ourselves. That, Lord, we would be obedient to your word and to your instructions, knowing that what we do today affects generations in the future. And yet, God, you're in control of the whole thing. That you, Lord, make beautiful the things that we mess up. That despite our choices, our poor decisions, that you've given us free will to make, that ultimately you are in control and you will see things to pass as you will. So, Lord, I pray for our church that we would have a sensitivity to be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen.